0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to the Schwepp, Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net, episode 134 Introducing Yamblichus of Chalkis. The time has come, gentle listener, to introduce the great, the divine Yamblichus of Chalkis, known to later Platonists as an unparalleled authority on matters metaphysical and physical, and known to Western esotericism, where his work and thought have flourished in a number of different streams, which we shall need to cover as the podcast progresses, as both a metaphysician of great importance and as an authoritative voice, making addressative ritual philosophically, even monotheistically, Abrahamically, respectable. In this episode, we want to cover the basics of his biography, Obscure, And of his works, we possess a frustratingly incomplete selection of mostly fragments from what seems to have been an immense literary output. And we'll talk a little bit about his place in the history of philosophical Platonism in late antiquity. Next time, we shall delve into his thought, both the compelling metaphysics and the more down-to-earth ritual stuff, if down-to-earth is the right way of putting it. And after that, we shall address the esoteric Iamblichus. So, first of all, biography. We know very little of Iamblichus' life, and what we do know comes mostly from the Lives of the Sophists of one Eunapius of Sardis, a late fourth century sophistical writer who's often looked at with a lot of skepticism because he's quite ready to report miraculous happenings. We also have some information from John Malalas, a sixth century Christian chronicler, but Although he's a lot later than Jamblocus, he was Antiochene, so he seems to have some pretty in-depth knowledge of the Syrian scene, which, as you'll see, makes him relevant for Yamblichus' life. Everyone agrees that Yamblichus was born in Chalcis, which is probably modern-day Kinnisrin in northern Syria, although there was a Chalcis in southern Syria as well. He was probably born in or around the year 240 CE. Although older scholarship leans toward a date several decades later, the question hinges on the single reference to Iamblichus in Porphyry's Life of Plotinus, section 9. Discussing Plotinus's distinguished female students, Porphyry mentions Amphiclea, who became the wife of Ariston, son of Iamblichus. Now, is this our Iamblichus? Impossible to say for sure, but Porphyry expects us to know who this guy is, which probably means it's a fairly well-known Iamblichus, and we only know of one well-known Iamblichus in our period, so this is probably our Iamblichus. So then, if you try to work out a chronology based on Iamblichus having had a son named Ariston, and he is old enough to get married to a student of Plotinus sometime after Plotinus's death, which seems to be what Porphyry is getting at. We come up with a date not much later than 240 C.E. for Iamblichus's birth. So Iamblichus and Porphyry were just about the same age. Porphyry, born in or very near the year 232, is maybe ten years older than Iamblichus, something like that. Anyway, we don't know for sure when he was born, but this is the range of informed scholarly guesswork. In a nutshell, Iamblichus Eunapius tells us was of noble ancestry, and Damascius writing in the 6th century, gets more specific. He was of the line of the priest-kings of Emesa. These ancestral rulers were players in the Hellenistic and then later the Republican Roman politics in the region, and they remained prominent into the 2nd century, although their official role as priest-kings seems to have been shut down by Domitian at the end of the 1st century. Nevertheless, inscription evidence shows us that they're still very prominent in local life well into the 2nd. So these are big boys in the in the regional scene. This regal lineage probably explains why Iamblichus went by the Semitic name Iamblichus, which is widely agreed to be a Greek form of a Syriac or Aramaic word Yamleku, meaning "May he rule," with El, the supreme God, being understood. So, may God rule, as we saw with Porphyry, and as the general practice in antiquity teaches us, it was normal for those of non-Greek origins to take on Greek or Roman names, uh, when dealing with Greeks and Romans at least, or when publishing their works. Iamblichus never did this, and this may well be because he was sort of proud of his origins. As we shall see, his construction of a wisdom lineage puts more emphasis on the wise barbarians, including the Assyrioi, Assyrians, by which he probably means his own people, than the average. And the average among Platonists in our period, as we know, is pretty high in terms of how much weight you want to give to the wise barbarian peoples. Iamblichus seems to have been especially into these wise barbarians. Mind you, it's hard to square this sort of semi-argument with his having had a son named Ariston, which is as Greek as you can get. But we really don't know enough about Iamblichus or the scene in which he moved to draw any conclusions about this. For all we know, Ariston could have been a Greek translation of a Semitic name, meaning the best, which is what Ariston means in Greek. Just like Porphyry was a kind of semi-humorous play on his Phoenician name Malchus, so maybe that's what was going on with Ariston, we don't know. Iamblichus was at any rate rich, as casual references to a number of suburban villas in Eunapius in let us know, in passing. So the guy, um, whatever his exact um, family situation had a bunch of villas in and around probably Apamea, and um, you don't have that unless you're fairly well off. Eunubius tells us that Iamblichus studied first with a certain Anatolius and then attached himself to Porphyry, which suggests that he may have studied with Porphyry as a student, possibly in Rome. Now, there's a whole debate over who this Anatolius was, and we refer listeners to the bibliography for that. A vexed question, and leads us into labyrinths of different texts, different people named Anatolius, including one who became bishop of Laodicea, and at least one polytheist Anatolius, who is a philosophic teacher, but there might have been more active philosophic teachers named Anatolius in this period. Uh, In the end, scholars just need to either plonk for one option or shrug their shoulders. Um, it's worth mentioning the the Bishop of Laodicea here, because for a long time, it was thought that that would be sort of impossible. You couldn't have someone like Iamblichus uh, moving in Christian circles because he is a kind of standard bearer for polytheist religion. But from what we know about late antiquity and philosophic teaching circles, uh, this is, of course, totally normal. And we'll see this again when we get to the late antique philosophic scene in Alexandria where, of course, you have Sinesius and Hypatia and all that good stuff. But as to the actual identity of this Anatolius, who was his first teacher, we will just shrug. However, the relationship between Iamblichus and Porphyry is equally difficult to figure out. And here we can't really shrug, because the correspondence between Porphyry and Iamblichus is the locus for the ridiculously important debate over theurgy which we shall be discussing in a few episodes' time. There's a lot of disagreement over the relationship between Porphyry and Iamblichus among scholars. All our evidence, and there isn't much of it, suggests that they knew each other personally in some capacity. But beyond that, it's difficult to say. Aaron P. Johnson in his book on Porphyry simply states that Iamblichus was a student of Porphyry. John Dillon has Iamblichus as, quote, a man of mature views and years when he came into contact with Porphyry and not a young and reverent disciple which uh, whatever else was going on is is probably the picture. We know that Porphyry dedicated a lost work on the philosophic maxim, know thyself, the motto of Apollo's oracle at Delphi, one which was enthusiastically taken up by philosophers throughout the centuries. You all know this, know thyself. He dedicated this work to Iamblichus, and Iamblichus says in his De Anima that he heard Porphyry state a certain position. Now, in classical Greek, this would have meant that he really heard him saying something. He was listening to him in person. But as Dylan points out, the verb akuo, to hear, comes to mean a lot of less direct acquisitions of knowledge in later Greek. So it's difficult to say exactly what iamblichus means here. He might mean that he heard Porphyry say something. He might mean he read something that Porphyry wrote. He might mean he heard someone saying something that they read in something by Porphyry, if you see what I mean. Still, I think it's probably a reference to having actually heard Porphyry say something. Now, if Iamblichus was hanging out with Porphyry, this was probably at Rome, or at least Rome is the easiest location to imagine, but we don't have any direct evidence that Iamblichus hung out with Porphyry at Rome. It could have been at Lilybaeum, where Porphyry retired, as we know, from Rome when he got all suicidal, or it could have been somewhere else even that isn't mentioned in the sources but probably safe to say that Iamblichus had a Roman sojourn at some point, but the dates are unclear. At any rate, how we characterize the precise relationship between the two philosophers is, as Paulina Remis has rightly called it, a matter of taste. Subsequently, either after Porphyry's death in approximately 305 CE, or while Porphyry was still alive, Iamblichus returned to Syria and set up his own school. Eunapius does not say where Iamblichus settled, and John Malalas, writing as I mentioned earlier in the 6th century, tells us that Iamblichus taught at Daphne, a suburb of Antioch. Now, Dylan admits the possibility that Malalas is correct, but thinks that Apamea is more likely. If he settled at Apamea, and we do have some difficult evidence from Julian's letters of all places which seemed to indicate that, indeed, he did settle down at Apamea. This really gives Apamea a major philosophical pedigree, from Posidonius to Numenius to Aemilius, Plotinus' leading pupil, until Porphyry came along and stole that shine, who retired there in the 260s, and then Iamblichus, and doubtless lots of other cool weirdos in the meantime. So, most likely, he was teaching at Apamea, possibly at Daphne near Antioch. It kind of doesn't matter for our purposes. Now, what did Iamblichus's school look like? Nothing like a school does nowadays. The common pattern, as far as we can tell, in late antique philosophic teaching, was that the head of the school, the Plotinus, or maybe Porphyry, or whoever, was the school. Question and answer sessions, discussions of Platonic and other texts, and so forth, will have been a major part of the philosophic day. But Eunapius also gives us lots of detail, which is very precious actually, as to the kinds of things these philosophers were getting up to. They went for days out at the nearby hot springs of Gadara. They went on journeys to meet other philosophers and to dispute with them. They did sacrifices as a group and engaged in other ritual practices. But one thing seems clear from Eunapius. We need to imagine Iamblichus rolling up with his entourage wherever he went. He's always surrounded by a bunch of students, seemingly. And if Eunapius is accurate, his crew saw him as a semi-divine, wonder-working holy man. Two anecdotes illustrate this very well. The first is taken from Eunapius 458 in Wright's text. Eunapius has been talking about Jamblichus's distinguished group of pupils, giving us the names of the more famous ones, or famous in his day, and about what a great teacher he was. We then read the following. Occasionally, he did perform certain rites alone, apart from his friends and disciples, when he worshipped the divine being. But for the most part, he conversed with his pupils and was unexacting in his mode of life and of an ancient simplicity. As they drank their wine, he used to charm those present by his conversation and filled them as with nectar. Remember, when we described Eunapius as a sophistical writer, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. He's writing a flowery prose with lots of, uh, old-fashioned tropes in it. He's not a rigorous military historian like Amianus Marcellinus, whom we'll be seeing when we get to Julian. And they never ceased to desire this pleasure, and they never could have too much of it, so that they never gave him any peace. And they appointed the most eloquent among them to represent them, and asked, "'O master most inspired, why do you thus occupy yourself in solitude instead of sharing with us your most perfect wisdom?' Nevertheless, a rumor has reached us, through your slaves, that when you pray to the gods, you soar aloft from the earth more than ten cubits to all appearance, that your body and your garments change to a beautiful golden hue, and presently, when your prayer is ended, your body becomes as it was before you prayed, and then you come down to earth and associate with us. Iamblichus was not at all inclined to laughter, but he laughed at these remarks. And he answered them thus He who thus deluded you was a witty fellow, but the facts are otherwise. For the future, however, you shall be present at all that goes on. This was the sort of display that he made, and the report of it reached the author of the, this work from his teacher, Chrysanthius of Sardis. End of quote. So, the author of this work, Eunapius, is referencing Chrysanthius of Sardis, and Chrysanthius was himself a student of one of Iamblichus' students. So he's, he's giving himself a bit of a lineage here as to how he knows this little anecdote and why we should maybe take it seriously. So there we have Iamblichus having the reputation as a wonder worker, but sort of denying it, saying, no, 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 nonsense, but, but anyway, let's carry on. The next incident we want to look at comes from 459, right, the next section. So some things have happened. Jamblichus has done some more miraculous type stuff. And then, quote, sometime after, they decided to go to Gadara, a place which has warm baths in Syria, inferior only to those at Baiae in Italy, with which no other baths can be compared. So they set off in the summer season. Now, he happened to be bathing, and the others were bathing with him. And they were using the same insistence, whereupon Jamblichus smiled and said, It is irreverent to the gods to give you this demonstration but for your sakes it shall be done. There were two hot springs, smaller than the others, but prettier. And he bade his disciples ask the natives of the place by what names they used to be called in former times. When they had done his bidding, they said, there is no pretense about it. This spring is called Eros, and the name of the next one is Anteros. He at once touched the water with his hand. He happened to be sitting on the ledge of the spring where the overflow runs off, and uttering a brief summons, and the, um, the vocabulary here in the Greek is um, very much the kind of uh, vocabulary we find around magical workings. Uttering a brief summons, he called forth a boy from the depths of the spring. He was white-skinned and of medium height. His locks were golden and his back and breast shone. And he exactly resembled one who was bathing or had just bathed. His disciples were overwhelmed with amazement, but Iamblichus said, Let us go to the next spring. And he rose and led the way with a thoughtful air. Then he went through the same performance there also, and summoned another Eros, like the first in all respects, except that his hair was darker and fell loose in the sun. Both the boys embraced Iamblichus and clung to him as though he were genuinely their father. He restored them to their proper places and went after his bath, reverenced by his disciples. After this, the crowd of his disciples sought no further evidence, but believed everything from the proofs that had been revealed to them, and hung on to him as though by an unbreakable chain. End of quote. Eunapius then goes on to hint with wonderful esoteric flourishes that Iamblichus performed even greater marvels than this, but that he, Eunapius, must remain silent about them. Now then, for all that scholarship has moved away from earlier images of Jamblichus as a purveyor of spineless syncretism and a miracle monger, through a phase when, as John Dylan puts it in his pioneering work on the text of Jamblichus's commentary fragments, his reputation moved from that of a third rate magician to that of perhaps a philosopher of the second rank, down to the present day when scholars like Gregory Shaw are discovering in Jamblichus's thought a philosophy of the greatest insight and practical spiritual application. Well, nevertheless, we can kind of see what those earlier scholars were on about when they called him a miracle monger and, you know, sort of that he was living in a world of superstition. What does Eunapius tell us here? That Iamblichus is actually quite scornful of that sort of miracle performance theater. But then, what are we to make of the Eros and Anteros incident? So, Eros, of course, is. Passionate sexual love and the god of love, the son of Aphrodite, Anteros would be like a counter Eros. And we do find Eros and Anteros in some mythological sources, but but the exact reference here is a little bit obscure. Nevertheless, he's he's sort of seemingly stage managed the whole thing. Um, So, where he says, Ask them what these uh, springs are called. They're called Eros and Anteros. And then watch this Eros and Anteros are going to appear. And then they appear and they're beautiful young boys and they cling to Iamblichus. And he's like, You see? Nevertheless, Eunapius basically tells us that Iambluchus performed this miracle because he couldn't get his students to stop demanding miracles from him, right? He said, this is impious, but okay, for your sake, I will do it. So he's being portrayed as someone who's, not, who's poo-pooing all that sort of thing. But nevertheless, Eunapius can't help but keep recording all these miracles that he performed. And there's other ones that he, that he mentions that we haven't had a chance to go through in this episode. And these are not the kind of miracles that Plotinus performs in Porvary's Life of Plotinus. Plotinus was able to divine which slave stole a necklace, stuff like that, which shows powers of maybe uncanny perception, but don't really break the natural order of things. No, with Iamblichus, we're talking about levitation. Um, We're talking about highly theatrical, very concrete signs of the god's approbation the wonder-working of the kind familiar from Lucian's on Alexander the False Prophet, for example. See our special episode where we speak with Lucian specialist Karen Nivali, where the gods reach down and cause supernatural stuff to happen based on the holy qualities of the sage, right? So even if Iambluchus isn't fully embracing this role, and which is the picture the Eunapius paints of him, his followers were. Later on in his narrative at 475, Eunapius relates a miracle performed by Maximus of Ephesus, student and kinsman of Idesius of Cappadocia, who was the student and successor of Iamblichus, right? So this, is, this guy is in the philosophic chain of Iamblichus, in which Maximus got a bunch of people together and, in what sounds like a brilliant piece of religious stagecraft, prayed before a statue of Hecate and burned some incense. And then the statue smiled and laughed. And when people started to freak out, he said, wait a minute, that's nothing, because now the torches in the goddess's hands will burst into flame. And they did. So we can say that there was a very strong vein of, call it miracle mongering, call it love of the miraculous in the tradition stemming from Iamblichus, even if he himself wasn't doing this sort of stage managed stuff beyond the Eros and Anteros thing. Now, whether we want to read this as performative ritual, as fakery or superstition or whatever is another question with methodological implications that go beyond the scope of our introduction here. So this at least gives a a flavor of the kind of life Iamblichus was living. He was doing philosophy day in and day out with his huge crew of students, but he was also surrounded by a kind of aura of holy man power. Now, when did Iamblichus die? Well, Eunapius tells us only that he died after Alypius, an Egyptian philosopher of the day, renowned for his dwarfish stature. But this doesn't help us much with the date. We know that he must have been dead by the year 326-327, and possibly somewhat earlier. So something like 240 to 326 would be the basic dates for Iamblichus's life. And that brings us to the end of our biographical section Interested listeners will definitely want to get themselves the amazing Loeb edition of Philostratus and Eunapius, edited by Wilmer Cave Wright, and just read these accounts for themselves because I've left out loads of other miraculous stuff. And also a lot of fascinating astrological and ritual detail, which we shall be getting to a little bit in a few episodes time, but not all of which will fit into the podcast. Now, what did Iamblichus write? He wrote a lot Most of it is lost, as we saw with Porphyry. John Dillon, in his edition of the Commentary Fragments, gives a useful list of works attributed to Iamblichus' pen. Since Dillon's pioneering work on the fragments, first on the Timaeus Fragments, an edition of which was his PhD thesis, then expanded to the 1973 Brill edition of all the then-known Platonic Commentary Fragments, much has been done to edit and translate various works of Iamblichus' but many still remain relatively unstudied, surviving only as fragments lost among the enormous commentaries by later Platonists like Proclus, Damascus, and Simplicius. And Proclus, Damascus, and Simplicius, but especially Proclus, quote Iamblichus all the time, but in a way where they don't necessarily mention his name and the style that they follow is really not to quote verbatim, but to paraphrase, rephrase. This makes it very difficult often to find, first of all, which bits are Iamblichus and which bits are them, then having found the bit that you think is Iamblichus, to decide to what degree uh, did, say, Proclus put this into his own philosophical terminology and to what degree is this Iamblichian. And this is becomes a real problem for interpreting Iamblichus. When we talk about the Henads next time, you'll see why this is a problem. Did Iamblichus originate the doctrine of the divine Henads? probably, but it's a little bit hard to say because we don't know if Proclus is sort of importing henads backwards or whether he's really talking about henads in those terms. At any rate, back to his works. So Iamblichus wrote a bunch of Platonic and Aristotelian commentaries. Most survives from his Timaeus commentary, which is full of amazing metaphysics, astral religion, astrology, and other coolness. More from that next time. He also wrote a Parmenides commentary, which Damascius used as a source a lot in his Problems and Solutions on First Principles. So his Parmenides commentary is very important in intellectual history, though little survives of it that we can say 100% is Iamblichus. So those are the commentaries. He wrote lots of other ones. We won't mention them here. We might want to add here his commentary on the Pythagorean Golden Verses, which we know to have existed, but which is unfortunately lost and the On Nicomachus' Introduction to Arithmetic, which is a kind of paraphrase-cum-summary of Nicomachus' work. Nicomachus' work does survive in this case, so we have a chance of comparing Iamblichus' take on it with the original. There's also, in the context of Nicomachus and the Arithmological Speculations, which seem to be attached to his name, the wonderful work entitled Theologumina Arithmetices, which has a troubled relationship with Iamblichus. We'll set that aside for now, and we'll return to it in due course, using it as an excuse to revisit the arts of arithmology in late antiquity and see how the decad has been getting on since we last paid it a visit. So as for Iamblichus's other works, his non-commentary works, we won't mention all of them here, um, and listeners are invited to check out the full list in Dylan's edition of the fragments, handily available in a reprint. From the Prometheus Trust, however, we should mention some crucial pieces that he wrote. We, of course, have to mention the De Mysteriis, A.K.A. On the Mysteries of the Egyptians, Chaldeans, etc., which is the title given by Marsilio Ficino to his Latin translation of this work. It's been known pretty universally as De Mysteriis or On the Mysteries ever since, but the manuscript title is actually. Response of the master Abamon to the letter by Porphyry to Anibo and solutions to the difficulties it contains. So who is Abamon? Well, he's an Egyptian priest. But the response to Porphyry, or De Mysterius, is almost universally acknowledged, from Proclus onwards, as really being by Yamlucus. This is the work, or these two works, Porphyry's letter to Anibo and Abamon's response to Porphyry, on which the whole debate about theurgy in antiquity really centers. And the work, which has probably played the most important direct role in Western esotericism of all of Iamblichus's works. I say direct because indirectly Iamblichus is incredibly influential, as we shall see in a number of ways. And we shall needless to say be devoting a considerable bit of airtime to discussing this gem of philosophical addressative ritual, and to the pseudonymous author, Abamon, the hermetic citations in book eight, the divine apparitions, and all the stuff that you, gentle listener, have been patiently awaiting. Jambluchus also wrote a De Anima, On the Soul, of which some decent-sized fragments survive, and this work is very helpful in making sense of the Dei Mysteries, and outlines a theory of soul which is really weird and wonderful, to which we shall return. Jambluchus wrote On the Pythagorean life a lengthy book of lore about the life of Pythagoras and the early Pythagoreans. This, together with Porphyry's Life of Pythagoras, is the source for the vast majority of the information we have about early Pythagoreanism. It is, however, unbelievably difficult to sift through the layers of lore contained in these two works to get at the supposed genuine early Pythagorean material, if there is any. (laughs) It freely rips off earlier works on Pythagoras by Nicomachus of Gerasa, on whom see Schwepisode 87, who's also a source for Porphyry, but Porphyry gives, actually names him. So Porphyry's work is less of a ripoff. Yambicus doesn't name him. He just starts writing and uh, quotes lengthy passages of Nicomachus. And he is clearly using as a source another life of Pythagoras, which might have been the lost life of Pythagoras by Apollonius of Tiana, the great wonder-working sage of the first century who has appeared in the podcast before and who will appear again in a big way when we get to medieval talismanic traditions. Incidentally, Jamblichus is often lambasted as a plagiarist because huge portions of his surviving works can be shown to be unattributed cribs from earlier authors. However, to balance this, we can note that he often quotes Plato without mentioning that he's doing so either. And it's very clear that his readership will have instantly recognized these quotes as being Plato. So there's there's no question that he's trying to pass off Plato's words as his own. And so maybe he's quoting these other authors just to present them in a useful form for his students, rather than to try to make it seem like he wrote them himself. Anyway, the question of plagiarism is a tough one in antiquity anyway. But we mentioned here just in the context of the fact that a lot of his works, especially his non-commentary works, his little essays on this or that, are freely copied from other authors. I wonder if this isn't a situation a little bit like Blavatsky assembling the secret doctrine from a mountain of secondary literature which she plunders without attribution. In both cases, Iambluchus and Blavatsky, they are by their own lights simply delving into the tradition and assembling the true teachings thereof, right? Call it plagiarism, call it perennialist br- bricolage. It's kind of a matter of taste. Yamkus also wrote On the Gods, which is lost, but seemingly was a very big influence on Seleustius' On the Gods in the World. An amazing work which we shall be covering soon in the podcast, when we get to the Emperor. And indeed, The Emperor himself seemingly uses this work. Of the Divine One in his orations to Helios and to the Mother of the Gods, which we shall, of course, be covering with a vengeance in the podcast. Also, in this religious vein, Iamblichus wrote an On Statues, lost but may be preserved in a few fragments in Lytus. and he wrote a book called The Chaldean Theology, which seems to have been an absolutely massive work explicating the theology behind the Chaldean oracles. Damascius mentions book 28, and that isn't even necessarily the final book, so we can be pretty confident, I think, that this work was huge and that Iamblichus here probably set the precedent for integrating exegesis of the Chaldean oracles into philosophic Platonism as a whole so that as we see in Proclus, the oracles can be used to explicate Plato, or Plato can be used to explicate the oracles. And why not throw in some Orpheus or Homer? Incidentally though, speaking of Orpheus and Homer, there isn't much Orpheus in Iamblichus, and he's actually quite harsh on Homer in the De Mysteries, which makes me think he took literally Plato's criticisms of Homer in Republic Book 10, which most Platonists just conveniently ignore. We've seen how much Porphyry loved his Homer, and we shall see Homer return in a big way as an authoritative voice in Julian and Proclus. But in Jamblichus, Homer comes in for some criticism. Now, this, I think, is to be understood in terms of Jamblichus' counterintuitively literalist reading of Plato, which we'll get back to in a moment. Jamblichus also wrote a book called Platonic Theology of which we have only a single reference in Proclus' own work of that name. And that's odd because um, you'd expect a work called Platonic Theology by Iamblichus to get a lot more press than it does in the surviving sources. But we can't say more about it than that, really. Now, that is a little survey of what, what we take to be the most uh, noteworthy works of Iamblichus. But he also wrote uh, letters, of which we have many in fragments. He wrote a panegyric of the Olypius, the little philosopher we alluded to earlier. He wrote lots of other loose works here and there, and we won't name them all here and to be honest, uh, he probably wrote a bunch of other stuff that we don't even have the titles for, judging from his literary output. Last but not least, he wrote a work called "On the Craftsmanship, uh, the Demiurgy of Zeus in the Timaeus, which uh, Dylan regards, as a work separate from the Timaeus Commentary proper. And this is interesting to us because this work outlines a crazily complex metaphysics, which seems miles away from what we find in the Timaeus Commentary. And that's pretty complex already, to be honest. So in the Timaeus Commentary, no surprise here, there's noetic triads, a gogo, The demiurge is a, is a noetic being, and there's the paradigm and all this kind of stuff. So it's a little bit complex. But in on the craftsmanship of Zeus and the Timaeus, forget Noetic Triads, make way for the Noeric Hebdomad. We'll return to this fascinating work next time. Before we get into Iamblichus in more detail, here are a few points that I have taken from my reading of The Divine One, things which I think are generally useful for understanding where this guy is coming from. You can take them or leave them, but they're just my kind of bullet points of interest. First of all, his position in the Platonist tradition. If Plotinus and Porphyry are the kind of Theraveda Buddhists of Platonism, they're vegetarian, they seek to transcend the lower world through non-attachment and meditative practices, then Yamblichus is a full-on Vajrayana Tibetan-style Buddhist. There is some serious blood and guts practice going on in Yamblichus. Yes, he wants to transcend the lower world, But to do that, you need to dive headlong into matter and use it. And by using matter, we mean things like unlocking the powers hidden within matter through blood sacrifice rituals, practical astrology, invocation of higher entities into material forms, and other practices. Now, we don't know as much as we'd like to about ancient Platonist practice, but as far as the surviving evidence goes, this rather blood-soaked Platonism is something we first see with Iamblichus. Secondly, Iamblichus is, in a weird kind of way, a Platonic fundamentalist. What do we mean by this? In the surviving fragments of De Anima, to take one example, he goes to town on his Platonist predecessors. We might expect Iamblichus, even if he takes an anti platonian line on loads of things, we might expect him to dig Numenius in a big way. Right? After all, Numenius was really into Pythagoras, and uh, most antique writers call him a Pythagorean, and Iamblichus is also really into Pythagoras. But no, Numenius's theory of the soul is totally wrong. Why? Because it's not what Plato says. Now, it's never straightforward to decide what Plato says on a given subject, because he wrote dialogues and they contradict each other. So Iamblichus is in a way in the same position as a Christian fundamentalist, in that he's arguing for a literal reading of a body of texts which cannot have a single literal meaning. It's impossible. But this is how he positions himself in De Anima and his many commentaries. We need to stick to what Plato says. So in De Anima Fragment 7, Dylan Finamore, he has quickly surveyed some of the, um, what he takes to be the opinions of his predecessors on the soul. And Numenius comes in for major criticism because he seems to have equated the soul with the higher reality so that a soul can become a noose, for example, and um, we're not kind of stuck as souls, we can transform. And he says that Plotinus thinks more or less the same thing. Porphyry thinks uh, first one thing, then another, he sort of vacillates. And then he says this, quote, it is these doctrines to which Plato himself and Pythagoras and Aristotle and all the ancients who have gained great and honorable names for wisdom are completely committed, as one will find if he investigates their opinions with scientific rigor. As for myself, I will try to base this whole treatise, concerned as it is with truth, on these opinions. End of quote. So this single quote I've taken as an illustration of something that is very counterintuitively present in a lot of Iamblichus' works, which is that although the great tradition of wisdom is one transmitted primarily by non-Greeks for Iamblichus, nevertheless, when reading Plato, we need to stop all this kind of imaginative reworking of Plato and get back to the sola scriptura literal meaning of the Platonic dialogues. Again, that's impossible, but that is how Iamblichus positions himself, and it's a very interesting position to take for someone like Iamblichus. Thirdly, Iamblichus' position in later years was massive, not just among the later Polytheist Platonists like Proclus and Damascius, though especially among them. His metaphysics influenced seemingly everyone later than him, including via Proclus, the Christian writer known as the Pseudo-Dionysius. His theory of ritual influenced everyone, and also influenced Christian sacramentalism on a fundamental level. In one of the um, untold stories of Western history, he put an indelible stamp on late antique metaphysics, generally. As for his role in integrating practical ritual and occult sciences like astrology into philosophic practice in a compelling way, we shall have more to say on that in coming episodes but we want to emphasize that as a thinker, as an interpreter of Plato, as a metaphysician, Iamblichus was really taken seriously and really dominated the playing field for a few hundred years in late Platonist thought. Now, Porphyry was infinitely more influential than Iamblichus, as far as we can tell, after late antiquity going into the Middle Ages. Porphyry, as we mentioned in our episodes in him, taught logic. He taught Aristotle's logic to the Middle Ages, Islamicate, Latinate, and Greek-speaking, Jewish even. Porphyry was much more influential and maybe much more widely read outside of the circles of hardcore Platonism. But I feel like for the hardcore, for the Procluses, the Syrianuses, the Damasciuses of the later Platonist world, Iamblichus was the guy. And this made him, among other things, a kind of figurehead for the assertive, proudly polytheist intellectuals who were the most serious challenge to the surging post-Nicene Christianity. So he was a kind of rallying point for the resistance to the takeover. By Christianity. And this makes his later indirect reception within the folds of Christianity by Pseudo-Dionysius, Eugenia, and others, not to mention the direct reappropriation of Yamlukos by Ficino and everyone after Ficino, uh, makes this all this particularly complex and interesting. Uh, He even has a minor, but important, Islamicate reception going forward. Mostly, it seems that uh, Porphyry's letter to Anibo had a an important Islamicate reception and Yamblocus's reply as abamon wasn't um, nearly as well known nevertheless it's there so for now we shall take regretful leave of the divine the great the most excellent Yamblocus until next time when we will talk about his metaphysics physics gods and goddesses daimones souls and other things which exist in his universe and then as we mentioned we'll turn to the esoteric in yambluchus Looking at his construction of lineage, his reimagination of the mysteries, and of the priestly art as philosophic esoteric practice, his highly apophatic first principle and how that works in discourse, and much more. Until then, stay esoteric.